No. Something given has no value. Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. All right, folks, buckle up, because this is a long one. Next available seminar, August 12th through the 14th, then October 14th through the 16th. For training camps coming up September 10th, we have a self-sufficient lifter camp in Wichita Falls covering the squat, the press, and the deadlift. Then we have a few squat and deadlift camps on the list, June 11th in San Antonio at Starting Strength San Antonio, June 11th in Omaha, Nebraska at Testify, and then finally June 11th in Orlando at Starting Strength Orlando, and then June 12th, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, with a few spots left. For events of note, 5x3 Training in Baltimore is running their 11th annual Charm City Strong Woman Contest. This is a charity event that raises money for the Allman House, which is a home away from home for folks undergoing cancer treatment. Emily and company have put on a spectacular event year after year. Five years ago, they set a goal for themselves to raise $100,000. They are close to hitting that goal this year. If you'd like more information or learn how to participate or just give a donation or buy a t-shirt to help support the cause, head over to startingstrength.com and under meets, you'll see June 12th, Baltimore, Maryland, and that will have all of the details. And then finally, Starting Strength Gyms Updates. Just a few gyms to make certain that you know are coming online. We've mentioned Tampa. We've mentioned Miami. Atlanta is in the mix. Nashville's in the mix. Indianapolis is close. Tulsa is close. We got a spot coming in Fort Worth and then doubling up on a few cities where we operate already in Denver and Oklahoma City. So for more information on any of those, head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com and check out the map. And finally, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. Uh, we are pleased to have uh, with us this weekend uh, Dr. Keith Nichols from Tier 1 Health and Wellness. And uh, he is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, we have talked to Keith before about testosterone replacement therapy. And I've been threatening for months now to get him back on and now here we are and we are going to talk in great detail today about lots and lots of things and uh i hope that uh you guys uh get something out of this discussion today because uh there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of things are being done incorrectly and we're going to talk about all of it keith thanks for being here hey thanks for having me back yes sir so, uh, I'd like to start the, the, the program off today with, with a general observation. Uh, it seems to me, and I don't know if this is true, maybe you shed some light on this, it seems to me as though there is evidence, both clinical evidence and observational evidence, for uh, the idea, for the fact, perhaps, that Testosterone levels are lowering in men across the population. Is that just my political observation, or is that really 
something we're seeing. It's really occurring, and not just here in America, but other countries as well. Multiple studies have shown a decline in men's testosterone all over the world. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't think it's just purely related to obesity and a sedentary lifestyle, because a study done by Dr. Travison previously uh, showed that men's testosterone levels were decreasing significantly, and he attributed it to environmental factors, not obesity, smoking, right. sedentary lifestyle. So I believe it's our toxic environment. In fact, you know, there, I, I, don't th I think we have indisputable proof at this time. And I'm going to tell you, I was at the Androgen Society meeting this weekend with the world's top urologist, okay, Dr. Morgan Toller, all of them. And there was no mention in this entire meeting about declining testosterone levels and why. So I specifically asked each one of them, well, what about endocrine disrupting chemicals? Not a single person had ever heard of an endocrine disrupting chemicals. None well, this is unfortunate because uh, that indicates, I mean, you know, you and I have discussed this before and lots and lots of people have observed that there are environmental disruptors of for testosterone production. Now, it has, been, it has long been known that uh, uh, hormone systems are very complicated. It's, it, you start perturbing them and they react in interesting ways. For example, it has been studied before that, uh, let's say guys go off on a two week hunting trip with their buddies and they come back after two weeks of being away from the wife and guess what happened? Sperm counts went up. Now, there are, there's an interesting, very primitive explanation for this and uh, I think that it's uh, it's interesting to note that these things are still in operation after tens of thousands of years. You come back from two weeks away from your old lady, and you don't know who's been in the house while you were away. Your sperm count would be better elevated in order to reestablish your presence in the house and your presence in fathering a, a potential child and in the absence of uh, the two weeks. And, uh, and, and so it's, I mean, this is reptile brain shit. This is way down buried deep in the DNA. And all of these hormone axes are terribly complicated. They're dependent on lots and lots of environmental factors, not just soybean oil and trans fat and a bunch of sugar and donuts and shit like that that, you know, comprise a significant percentage of most modern people's diet. But the, the, the presence of females around a male affects testosterone levels. And this is a, this is a terribly, interesting, terribly interesting observation. What about our behaviors in addition to being exposed to uh, you know, chemical environmental um, disruptors. Uh, what about behavior? What, did, what has behavior changed in the past 30, 40, 50 years? You know, we can make some observations about that just on 
you know, sitting back and watching what is going on in society. Uh, you know, toxic masculinity didn't used to be a word. That was never a term. I mean, masculinity is frowned upon now, and there's lots and lots of cultural factors that mitigate against it. And those could very well be having an effect on testosterone levels across cultures. And I don't know, and I don't know if you've got any input on that, but it certainly seems to be worthy of consideration. Well, you are seeing the foundation of men right in front of you. We all see it. All right, they're 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 exposed to these chemicals in utero. Their mother was exposed to them. Sure. From a clinical standpoint, I'll tell you, baseline levels of 50, 60, and 70-year-old men on average are higher than the 30-year-old men that I see. Yeah. Those guys, the, the older men, were never exposed to those chemicals. There wasn't a microwave. There was no plastic. So at baseline, they have a better testosterone level right. than 30-year-olds. And they weren't raised in single-parent families either, right? They weren't only around a female right. for, you know, 15 years. I, you know, this seems far-fetched, but I don't think it can be discounted as a factor, right? Well, sure. So, but uh, the problem is, is you know, they're born with lower levels, and that's really right. uh, the, the right. problem that we're dealing with. They don't have any reserve. So as they get a little age on them and they drop a little bit, they have no reserve. If you right. started out with a 900 level and dropped to 7, you may be okay. But when you start out with a 350, uh, you don't have much reserve. Right. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of 30-year-old guys with 185 total testosterone <laughs> levels, and that's just weird. It's just weird, but it is a fact, and it's it's it it at some point's got to be addressed. And the way we're talking about addressing it today is with replacement right. therapy. Okay, so as far as that goes, yes, those endocrine disrupting chemicals are real. They are having an effect on the production and the utilization of testosterone. Right. It's even acknowledged that the, by the endocrine society, there's a whole section based on endocrine disrupting chemicals. They acknowledge that they're there, that they're wreaking havoc on the endocrine system, but yet they don't factor that into any treatment guidelines. None. Right. So, uh, so, Keith, given the situation with uh, lower testosterone levels, uh, it seems to me that the, uh, the reluctance of the medical community as a whole to treat this is, uh, is a serious problem. I, you know, we, we talk to guys all the time that have gone to their primary care physician they're they're measured in terms of their levels the levels come back but then you know at the lower end of this ridiculous reference range and they say well you're normal so you don't need treatment and that's just not true if you are symptomatic you need treatment but there is a tendency in across all of modern medicine to treat blood values instead of symptoms and I, you know, I, I don't know where this comes from. Maybe it comes from Quest Diagnostics, but I, it, it, it is a, uh, it's a, it's a serious problem. You know, a kid shows up in the, 
you know, a 29-year-old kid shows up at the doctor with symptoms of hypogonadism. You know, he needs testosterone. He shows up with a testosterone, total testosterone of 295, and they say, well, you're in the reference range. I guess you're normal. Well, but I'm not normal, doctor. I'm telling you, I can't keep it up. I'm worried all the time. I'm depressed. I'm not sleeping worth a damn. I'm showing all of the classic symptoms of low testosterone, but you say that because this number is within this arbitrary range that I don't need treatment. Why are they reluctant to treat this? What's the deal? Is it well, the prostate cancer we are thing? indoctrinated into normal got to stay within the normal range for safety reasons mm-hmm. or they think that so we are indoctrinated with everything that if it's normal leave it alone they don't have the disorder but that is not true with hormones okay no believe it or not there is no level of testosterone that denotes a deficiency well, what does that mean there's no right. level you can hang your hat on like 300 for instance to say everyone above that doesn't need it everybody below it does need it because that's not how it works we all have different receptor sensitivities okay right and each man has his own number steroid hormones are not like uh penicillin they're not the same thing as penicillin their effects are chronic they are not acute things except now there are some acute things about testosterone all right and this is this has always been interesting to me uh guy walks in my office you know and i've had this happen several times friends of mine guys i've known for years they walk in and they're all you know they look like shit they're they're not sleeping they feel bad they're just you know god i've been you know i've been crying and all this other shit and uh i always ask him well i usually know are you are you taking a testosterone well no no why should i do that and uh good friend of mine in fact uh i had this happen to him uh last year or a couple of years ago walked into office and he's he's telling me all this insane shit and i said i tell you what i want you to come back up here tomorrow afternoon at five o'clock i'm going to give you a shot from my testosterone to give you a shot. Oh, a shot? I said, shut up. Quit arguing with me. Have your ass up here at 5 o'clock. So, you know, he's all taken aback and everything. But he showed up. He showed up the next day at 5 o'clock. And I brought, I brought 400 milligram of testosterone with me. <laughs> and I put it in his ass. And... Uh, you know, right in the right in the glute, and he immediately started complaining about the pain. And I said, "What else do you need to know about your testosterone levels that you're complaining to me about the pain from an ejection site?" All right, now you go home, and I and you're going to come back up here Wednesday and tell me how you feel. And this is like seventy-two hours later, and he comes back in Wednesday. He walked in the door, and I could tell something was different. Just carried himself differently. And he walked into the office, and he said, you were right. 
72 hours, he went from not, I wouldn't say suicidal, but I would say clinical depression to a perfectly normal guy. All right? So it does have acute effects. It does have acute effects. But the, the acute effects are all positive. The chronic effects are the ones everybody's worried about, aren't they? My question is, there is a reluctance to treat guys in this situation with testosterone. Uh, when, I mean, Keith, it seems perfectly obvious to me that since the, the, the acute effects of testosterone are pretty much all beneficial, there's no such thing as an overdose of a steroid hormone, right? Correct. And since the acute effects of testosterone are beneficial in situations of, of depression-type behavior, why would a psychiatrist not immediately treat a guy that is that presents in his office with these kind of, you know, depression symptoms? Why not just do it and see what happens? And the answer has to be they're afraid of something. What is it? Well, they're, they're not trained in it. They know nothing about it. That That's the bottom line. Right. If they did, they may do it, but they, they don't know it. And by the way, no specialty, including urologists, are really trained in hormone replacement therapy. No, I, I do not detect any familiarity with hormone replacement therapy in any urologist I've ever seen. They don't know anything about it. And these guys are urologists. They're supposed to be, this is in their bailiwick, theoretically. But they right. don't know anything well, about it. Right. Well, it, let me explain that, you know, something that I see all the time. Everybody will post their levels and look at my levels. Do you think I need testosterone? Well, well, the level doesn't really, really mean much. Okay? No. We're, we're talking about the, the symptoms. But the normal range is misinterpreted as being a healthy range. It right. is not. No, it's, it's an average. It's an average of 400 men. It's an average. Men had a BMI less than 30. So here's what the normal range should say. This is the average testosterone level for men with a BMI less than 30 that were not screened for testosterone deficiency symptoms. Right. Right. And and, and, as a result, that reference range is essentially meaningless for a therapeutic venue. It's meaningless. Right. Correct. And yet you walk into your GP's office and he says, well, you're above the you're, you're within the you're within the reference range. You're above the threshold. So you're normal, which is profoundly ignorant, profoundly right. ignorant. Well, let, and it's, it's the most frustrating thing that I deal with in my, you know, tangential relationship to this stuff. And I know that you're sick of hearing this, too. But people don't understand what a reference range means and how the range was arrived at and why five years ago the range was lowered. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, let me also kind of tell you and your listeners how lab-centric medicine has become. You know, it makes it real efficient to look at a lab so you right. don't need anything and bye-bye. You know, it makes it real quick, efficient, but it's not really how hormones work. Well, so and it re- an here's another important thing. It removes uh, judgment from the equation. 
if all I need to see is a reference range at your lab value, why can't your nurse just do that? And that's kind of what happens because that makes it efficient. You don't have to sit down and listen and then treat based on symptoms. That takes time, mm -hmm. and they don't have that time. But let me give yes. you an example of, of what happens, and you'll understand just how how messed up it may really be. So let's take two twin, let's take twin brothers, okay? And let's say they go to the same physician. Brother number one goes to his physician, he's doing great. His sexual function is excellent, he's working out, he's not fatigued, his libido is awesome, everything's great about this guy, he feels wonderful. And they test his levels and it's 750, let's say, still within the normal range. Brother number two goes in, he has no libido. He's having erectile dysfunction. He's not gaining strength. And in fact, he's gaining weight, increasing fat, and he feels terrible. His levels were 300, let's say, all right? So he says, hey, doctor, can you give me some testosterone? And the doctor will say, no, you're in the normal range. Your levels are 300. And then brother number two says, but wait a minute, my brother feels great. He's at 750. Uh, why can't I have my levels at 750 to see if I feel as good as my brother does? No, you can't. Your levels are normal. It'll increase your risk of prostate cancer, heart attacks or stroke. It's dangerous, so I'm not giving you testosterone. And then the brother says, but wait a minute, if it's dangerous, why are you letting my brother have a 750 level? I love my brother. Lower his level to my level. Lower his so level so he's safe. I do. <laughs> so he's so safe. that's really how medicine works right now. Yeah. Everybody that's going to their doctor, if a, if a patient before you came in with a level of 800 and felt great, they'll pat him on the back, not think a thing about it. You come in at 300 and are severely symptomatic, you don't get testosterone even though it was okay because it might be dangerous patient before you <laughs> yeah it's just so, it's stupid it's yeah. just stupid there's just no logic or analysis being applied here and uh yeah, this yeah the prostate cancer thing's interesting where did that come from keith man can i can i have the time to tell you Please. a story that uh that i think it's very important you. because it's the most frequently mentioned thing at the gp's office is prostate okay. cancer because these guys the, don't know right. what the hell they're talking about all right i'm going to tell you a story of the androgen hypothesis if you don't mind and after i tell you this story all your listeners will know more than their gp does okay but you're right prostate cancer is the number one fear for men before they start it, or reasons why they don't start it, as well as what family physicians will tell them, don't start it because you'll get it. So let's talk about that. So look, the belief for over seven decades has been that high testosterone causes prostate cancer or increases a man's risk of developing prostate cancer, and that low testosterone was protective against prostate cancer, and that if you raise testosterone, you would cause an existing prostate cancer to grow rapidly the equivalent of pouring gasoline on a fire. Who hasn't heard that? Now, where did this androgen hypothesis originate? It came from a paper in 1941 written by two urologists, Drs. Huggins and Hodges. Now, Dr. Huggins was a very well-known urologist, and in fact, he went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1966 for his work with hormones and cancer. So a famous urologist. Now, in this paper, they looked at men with metastatic prostate cancer. 
Now, back then, there wasn't a PSA test, so they looked at something called a prostate acid phosphatase as a serum marker for metastatic prostate cancer. Now, in this study, Dr. Huggins reported that when men were castrated, either surgically or chemically, the acid phosphatase levels went down. He also gave testosterone injections to men, and he reported that in every man that got testosterone injections, the acid phosphatase levels went up. That sounds bad. Now, this was an important paper at the time because, believe it or not, this was the first paper that identified a cancer to be hormonally sensitive, all right? The paper established three things. Number one, that acid uh, phosphatase could be used as a serum marker for metastatic prostate cancer, that castration was effective for metastatic prostate cancer, and that testosterone injections given to men with metastatic prostate cancer was dangerous. Now. When you take a closer look at this paper, you see that testosterone injections was only given to three men. Results were given for only two of those men, and one of those men had been surgically castrated, so he was no longer hormonally intact. He is what we would call androgen deprived. So the general conclusion that, and this is a quote from the last line of the paper, cancer of the prostate is activated by testosterone injections. This was based on one hormonally intact patient who received testosterone injections for only 18 days, whose acid phosphatase levels went up and down and were essentially uninterpretable. So decades of depriving men of testosterone was based on the overinterpretation of the results of one single man in one study. Okay, so you may wonder how that can happen. Well, in the 1940s and 50s, there weren't many physicians that had any experience using testosterone. You know, nobody had an adequate knowledge to question the results, so it became dogma that testosterone was dangerous for prostate cancer, and it's still thought that to this day. Okay, it wasn't until the 1990s that a Harvard urologist by the name of Abraham Morgenthaler began to question the validity of the androgen hypothesis. In 1988, he actually started treating men with sexual function, sexual dysfunction that had low testosterone levels with testosterone. Now, at that time, there wasn't any Cialis or Viagra, so, you know, there really weren't any treatment options available. But what he noticed in the men that he gave testosterone that not only did they improve sexually, but they improved both physically and mentally. Now, you got to think about it. This guy had to be brave because at this time, his treatment in those men defied standard medical practice because in the 1980s, testosterone therapy was limited to three groups of men, men with congenital or genetic disorders like Klinefelter's, men with pituitary disorders, and those with absent testes. But he did become concerned because some of his colleagues warned him that he could potentially be causing harm based on the work of Dr. Huggins in 1941. So in 1992, he started performing biopsies on men prior to initiating testosterone therapy and symptomatic testosterone deficient men who had normal PSAs and a normal digital rectal exam. He wanted to rule out an existing prostate cancer before he gave him testosterone. What he found was that 11 out of the first 77 men that he biopsied had cancer. Now remember, <laughs> testosterone was supposed to protect against prostate cancer. Low testosterone was supposed to be protective. Now this percentage was almost identical to the percentage of men that have prostate cancer with increased risk factors like an elevated PSA or positive, positive digital rectal exam. So low testosterone was found not to be protective. 
Okay. So what about high testosterone? I mean, could it be harmful? Well, in 2004, he published a paper and prior to publishing that paper, he performed a world literature review from 1985 to 2004, looking for any relationship between testosterone and prostate cancer or testosterone therapy and prostate cancer. You know how many he found? He was unable to find a single article that testosterone increased the risk of getting prostate cancer or that testosterone therapy caused prostate cancer progression. Right. Well, you, you would think that were this such an established fact that it would have been investigated and confirmed many, many, many times. And yet, it wasn't. Right. Well, I mean, we have to make some observations as well. And he did make an observation that there was a tenfold increase in testosterone prescriptions after the release of Androgel in 2001, and there was not an epidemic of prostate cancer. We also know that 50% of men more than 50 years of age have microfoci of prostate cancer in their prostates. And if increasing levels of androgen cause cancer to grow more rapidly, then we should see more cancer growth in these men, but we just don't. The observation has also been right in front of us for decades, and I've heard you mention it before too. Young men with high testosterone levels do not get prostate cancer. It's a disease of aging when testosterone levels decline. But here's where the confusion lies, okay? In 2007, he uh, developed the, what we call the saturation model, okay? This is what your listeners really need to understand. Uh, so. He needed to make sense of two opposite observations that the data reported. When you castrate a man and decrease his testosterone, the PSA goes down. If you increase testosterone out of the castrate range, the PSA goes up. Okay, castrate range is 50 nanograms per deciliter or lower. Okay, but what the data also shows is that for most of the range of testosterone levels, including superphysiologic levels, there is no change in PSA level or prostate size. Now, how can this be? It is because androgens have a limited ability to stimulate prostate tissue. In order for androgens to exert an effect on prostate tissue, they must first bind to the androgen receptor. Once the androgen receptors are fully saturated with androgen, any increase in androgen is just excess. And the saturation of the androgen receptors occurs at a very low level, 250 nanograms per deciliter. So above this level, androgens have no further effect on benign or cancerous prostate tissue growth. So to summarize that, below 50 nanograms per deciliter, PSA goes down. Above 50 nanograms per deciliter, PSA goes up to a level of 250 uh, nanograms per deciliter. And then after 250, it has no effect on growth. So you got to think of the prostate like a house right. plant. If you deprive that plant of water, it's going to shrink. If you give it water at this point, it's going to grow. Now, giving it any additional water past this point will have no effect on growth. You can give it a constant water supply, and it will never grow into a tree. Once the thirst has been quenched, giving any additional water will have no effect on growth, and the same goes for testosterone right. and the prostate. And the, 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 the upshot of this is that a guy walking around with a testosterone level of 1250 has is in no greater danger of having an adverse effect on his prostate from the testosterone than a guy walking around at 275. Wait, it's, it's the opposite. I mean, yes. hey, check this. I mean, look, multiple studies have now revealed that low testosterone is associated with higher grades of cancer, 
a more advanced stage of cancer surgery, an increased rate of occurrence after surgery, and decreased survival. It's not high testosterone levels that are associated with poor prognostic factors, but it is low testosterone right. levels. In fact, higher levels of testosterone can suppress prostate cancer growth. That's why we use bipolar androgen therapy in men with prostate cancer because it's been shown to suppress the growth. So the opposite of what we've been thinking for seven or eight decades. Right. And those of you that are interested in this, we had an extensive conversation with Dr. Joe Bush about this uh, a couple months ago. And uh, Joe is a, as a urologist and he's quite familiar with this, the prostate surgery that he's developed to deal with these things. And it, I would really, really suggest that this is a topic of interest of yours that you revisit that podcast with Dr. Joe Bush from back several months ago here on Starting Strength Radio. And uh, so, the, but nonetheless, the fact that prostate cancer is not elevated or adversely affected at all by testosterone therapy the mythology persists it does is it just not possible to educate these guys well once what? again it's it's been dogma since 1941 but in small groups of, of urologists or you know ones that are involved in research they're now coming to an understanding of this but it's a very small group i mean once again uh, most physicians were trained years ago and they were trained that it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Right. And but the modern data shows complete, something completely different. In hypogonadal men, testosterone therapy doesn't increase the risk of developing prostate cancer, even in high-risk individuals. It may, in fact, have a protective effect against right. high-grade cancer. It doesn't increase the risk of progression in men on active surveillance that have prostate cancer. And it does not increase the risk of biochemical recurrence after treatment of prostate cancer right. with radiation therapy or radical prostatectomy. In fact, studies have shown a decreased recurrence rate in men after a radical prostatectomy that get testosterone. All right, now so you, you, you have guys the history and listen what really to us, guys. Now. You guys that are listening to this right now, listen to what the man is telling you. Okay, I know what your GP said. It's wrong. You've heard of being wrong before, right? People are wrong all the time. I'm wrong all the time. You're wrong all the time. And your GP is wrong. All right? Now, you trust who you want to because it's your ass, not mine. All right? But we're telling you the truth here. So get past this. Get past what you've heard about this. And if you're symptomatic, you need treatment. Okay? And it's available. So, Keith... How do you treat this thing? But how do I treat? How do you treat? What is your protocol for treating uh, for, for testosterone replacement therapy? Let's talk well, about I'll, how I'll this is a, 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 the individual man choose his method of delivery between injections or a transcrotal cream. So they get to choose their method of delivery. Now, what I find from a clinical standpoint is that a daily application of either kind of works the best. Now, most men are not going to inject daily for the rest of their life. It's just not feasible. So they'll end up injecting, you know, two, maybe three times a week, which is fine. The transcrotal cream they can use daily. It's 10 seconds twice a day. They could use that for the rest of their life. But I treat based on free testosterone levels and symptoms. 
All right. Okay. So let's talk about those levels. What do we, when we see a total testosterone, what are we looking at? You're looking at the percent. Yeah. Well, I look at just percent free testosterone. Well, but when you I, look at you, a total testosterone level, you're looking at all the testosterone, even that that's found the proteins and sex hormone binding globulin, including the free. Right. So, so we're that looking doesn't at, really mean anything. It's the free. Are you looking at dihydrotestosterone along with, is that a part of the total testosterone number? No. No, no it's not. No. Okay. So, uh, uh, so that'll be an interesting topic about DHT and estradiol. Testosterone is essentially a pro-hormone. Okay. It acts right. directly on muscle tissue, of course. But everywhere else where it provides significant benefits, it's converted to DHT or estradiol. Right. People it's, think it's all testosterone. It, it is not. metabolized into something else. Uh, so Absolutely. what is the relationship between total testosterone and free testosterone? How does, how does that well, total, ratio work? Well, it, typically it's going to be around 3 to 5% in an individual. The free individual, testosterone would be know, 3 to 5% of total. Of the total, yeah. And and, the and a lot of men, sometimes it's lower with men, low testosterone levels, of course. And there's going to be some other factors that may determine, you know, how high their, you know, free testosterone is, you know, their sex hormone mind globally, things like that. But really, free testosterone, typically two to five percent. And free testosterone represents the testosterone that is available to have a metabolic or have an endocrine effect on the receptor sites. Is that right? Correct. It's like going to the grocery store and having money in your pocket to buy your groceries versus money in the bank. The total testosterone is money in the bank, not really usable right there at right. the grocery store. It's the money in your pocket. The free so, testosterone yes, is the active utilize. fraction. Absolutely. All right. But once again, I want men to not, you know, not get the point that it's not just testosterone. Testosterone's a pro-hormone essentially. It has to be converted into its active metabolized DHT and estradiol to exert the majority of its effects. Right. Okay. So, so men just think, oh, just raise testosterone, 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 and that's all I'll ever need. And I'll block DHT or block estradiol, whether it actually causes harm at the tissue level. Okay. But I raise free testosterone and treat based on symptoms. And I typically see if a man gets a free testosterone, 30 to 50 or so nanograms for deciliter, I see clinical improvement i will have to say that when i see a man that has typically a close to 50 free testosterone i've never seen a man really that it didn't change his life when 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 somebody presents as a patient do you you what do you what do you give them you give them testosterone and either one of those methods of delivery what else Correct. is available as is, is, is a method of treatment all right, so I practice hormone optimization, okay, not just testosterone therapy. So let's make a distinction between those two. Now, testosterone therapy is just that, testosterone. It's adequate for a younger man, teen, 20, maybe early 30s. But after that, when you start getting your late 30s, definitely in your 40s and above, you really focus on hormone optimization. Now, what is that? It is the simple understanding that every hormone has beneficial effects. They work synergistically, but we want to maximize the beneficial effects of each hormone by optimizing levels. It's all about prevention. It's prevention of age-related disease, disability, dependence, and frailty. So I optimize all hormone levels in my men 
to maximize their health and protect them against age-related disease. Now, the, the problem is, is that most of the hormones don't have a lot of feel-good effects. You don't know when you take it. For instance, vitamin D, you don't know if you take it. You know you need it. You know you need it for bone health. You know, everybody knows that. Right. But you don't feel it when you take it. And the same can happen for some of the other hormones. The two that have the greatest impact on how you feel, function, perform, and your overall health is going to be testosterone and thyroid. Normal is not optimal. So this is the, the problem that a lot of men don't understand, and I try to make them understand. Most men, 90% of them, start testosterone with normal levels. They know the benefits of it. They've read about it. They're mm -hmm. all in. If they just took that same train of thought and applied it to all their hormones, then they would have the battle won. Right. Okay, so for instance, thyroid regulates temperature, metabolism, cerebral function, and energy levels. It protects against cardiovascular disease, cool. cognitive impairment, fatigue, weight gain, memory loss. It decreases visceral body fat and improves lipids. The higher the level, the better the level, the more optimal level, the more those effects you get. Just like with testosterone, where there's a dose-response relationship. Right. Now, the the problem I have with with perturbing hormone levels is that uh, every one of these hormones has got a tropic hormone associated with it that causes its secretion. And if you administer testosterone, you're going to suppress mm -hmm. HCG. If you administer HCG, you're going to suppress the tropic hormone for HCG, so on and so forth. You, uh, you administer, you supplement pregnenolone. You're going to, there's a tropic hormone for pregnenolone. And when the body sees elevated levels of all of these hormones, the natural thing that happens is for the body to assume that we've got enough of it and the tropic hormone levels are suppressed. And as I said, at the top of the show. These things are terribly complicated. Hormone axes are not really. I'm, I'm here to make it not complicated today. Understand that as we age, our hormones decline. Right. As we age, our health declines, and they go hand in hand. There is a trifecta of health, I call it. It is nutrition, exercise, and hormone optimization. You have to have all three of those. Yes, you got to have sleep and stress reduction, but you're not always in control of that. But those are the three. And what we need to understand is that when we were younger, we had these useful levels of these hormones and they decline with age, as does our health. The goal is to, is to maintain those healthy, robust levels. But look, you're starting it because you don't have good levels. You don't have optimal levels. All right. I mean, that's the whole reason you started. Right. I mean, of course, it's going to suppress your own production, but you're not producing enough already. Right. Right. That's why you're taking testosterone. You don't mind taking testosterone, but yet you have to apply that same train of thought to all of them because they all have wonderful beneficial effects, not just all feel-good effects. Right. So if I uh, suppress the tropic hormone axis on top of one after another of these things, what you're saying is, is it was already depressed anyway, or I wouldn't mm -hmm. be needing the supplementation. Correct. Okay. Correct. You all think right. just testosterone declines in you? It's all oh, no, going no, no. down. No, you're right. And once again, the normal range is not a healthy range, even for thyroid and the others. You've established that the normal right. range for testosterone is not healthy, neither are all the others. Therefore, right. an average of a population of essentially sick people. Right, right.
So the reference, right? The reference range for all of these things, it's an average range. It's not a. They call it the reference range because the manufacturers of the equipment call it the reference range. Right. And if you call it a reference range, it's a. It takes on a. Uh, a level of importance because it's the re- we refer to this. This is the reference range. This is what things are supposed to be when that's not the case at all. It's an average range. What is the, how do they determine the average of the reference range for thyroid for the, for T3, They don't don't list that like they do the other hormones, but typically those come from a captive audience that are involved in literature and that are involved in research for literature purposes are in the hospital, believe it or not. So they just recruit these, these people to contribute data to the reference range and Right. How often not, do they revise young, that? They, 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 they don't go look for the healthiest people they can find right. that don't have any symptoms that are in the peak physical condition to get these levels from thyroid or testosterone or anything else. Right. If we did, the reference range would be different. It'd be higher. Right. Sure it would. Sure it would. What? Uh, how often do they redo the reference ranges for these tests? Do you know that? Oh, I haven't seen a big change in any of the others other than testosterone, which changed in 2017. Yeah, and why uh, did that go down so markedly? What's the, do you have any input into that? Because we, yeah, we now have a normal, well, we now have a reference range consisting of a group of sick, poisoned men. That is exactly what I feel about it. These men are not producing, so look, if testosterone levels have gone down, men are producing less testosterone. So the new normal becomes less. That doesn't mean it's healthy. It's just an average of the population who are now producing less testosterone. So mm-hmm. therefore, the new normal is going to be lower. Well, I hope that, yeah, I hope that, that no, makes that's, sense. That's, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, if we're, we're just taking an average across a population, what population are we averaging? It is, came is, from 400 you know, is, men in is, four different studies. That's what you. Yeah, that's came, the question. What population did you average? If you average the population from, of a Turkish prison, <laughs> you're going to find a difference right. in that range than if you average the population across college athletes. So that is an excellent. Um, you know, that's an excellent. You know, it's just a, It's just it a really matter is. of. Of uh, this is the this is the problem with. Uh, Keith, uh, entry-level physicians, GPs, these sorts of people have such a superficial understanding of what they're doing. It's, it's terribly frustrating to hear back from people that have been told all of this just patent bullshit about, you know, a guy shows up at the, at the, at the doctor he legitimately needs some help. He legitimately needs some help, and he's got, uh, he's got, uh, you know, a, 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 a testosterone that's a low number. But he's also got all of these clinical symptoms. He's he's depressed. He can't keep it up. He can't sleep. You know, he feels bad all the time. You know, he cries. When a love song comes on the radio and, you know, all of these silly little things that indicate uh, that he does, in fact, have 
a, a lower than optimum androgen level. And all of these things are staring the doctor in the face. And in lieu of exercising informed judgment, the doctor refers to these numbers on this piece of paper. Correct. Yeah. Well, look. No, it says. Look. Look. It says right here that you're. That you're normal. Mm-hmm. So just enjoy being normal. Right. Well, but I'm not normal, Doc. I don't go to the doctor's office for fun. I'm down here because something is wrong, and you're ignoring what I'm telling you. Now, I've done enough research into this to know that I'm probably hypogonadal, to use a term that you might be impressed with. My testosterone is low, and yet you're telling me because these numbers fall within this range on this, on this test from Quest Diagnostics that I'm not abnormal, that I'm fine. When I'm not fine, you can see that I'm not fine. But you're not willing to do, do anything about it. Now, it just, Keith, that just pisses me well, off. Uh, uh, you know yeah, what I mean? I understand where they come from. They're trained when somebody is normal, they do not have the disease. They don't understand. When those numbers are normal, normal quote, normal. Like testosterone does not mean, it does not mean you're asymptomatic and free of disease just because you have a normal testosterone level. That's right. not how androgens like testosterone work. And, well, they apply the same thinking to cholesterol numbers, too, and that's just, nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. A friend of mine one time, his 19-year-old daughter, 19-year-old daughter, went to the doctor for something and they did blood on her and her total cholesterol came back at 215 and they wanted to put her on a statin now that is that is black and white medical malpractice they see it as you know we're trained by the pharmaceutical companies and anytime you're outside of the normal range let me treat you with a drug for the symptoms that you're having and that's just the way it is look Medicine is a business. Business, it's the biggest business. We only, they only make money if they're treating. They know there's no money in prevention. Right. So we need to maintain right. the sick. We can't. We don't want them to die, but we don't want them to be healthy either in mainstream medicine. Right. We want to treat. If they're That's healthy, the we they don't make money. any money off of them. Right. And, Correct. But here is, but the malpractice of this is, I look. Females don't derive any benefit from statins at all. No study has ever shown that, ever. Females are just fine with elevated, quote-unquote elevated, testosterone levels. No study has ever shown otherwise. None. And this girl left there with a Lipitor prescription. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, this is... This is just so fucking weird. And nobody seems to be concerned about it uh, at the AMA. Well, Mark, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here, but look, I went to this Androgen Society meeting this past weekend, and I was excited to be there with with Dr. Morgan and all these other prominent urologists that are doing the research. And Uh, even those guys. I say anything derogatory, derogatory, but I couldn't have been more disappointed 
they are also, they work in institutions, research institutions, they're treating patients every day. They are also bound by that normal range. There was nothing right. progressive is what I'm trying to say. There right. was nothing no. that, that was eye-opening, and I kind of was really disappointed. No, I understand. I, I, it's it's a difficult barrier to break through, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, I, if the funny thing is I was – we're in line to get lunch, and a guy just gave a talk, and he was standing up there talking, and he said – he talked to Dr. Morgan Taller, and I was next to him, and he said, you know, I've been finding – I need to find a way to increase free testosterone, you know? I uh, – you know, I'm thinking about, you know, I need to find something that will lower sex hormone binding globin and increase their free testosterone. And he says, I've been thinking about maybe Anavar, you know, giving them Anavar to lower their sex hormone binding globin. And I looked at him and I said, well, wait a minute. You want to raise free testosterone? He goes, yeah. I said, well, why not give more testosterone? To- raise total And he testosterone. literally looked at me like I just made a joke. He thought that we were going to laugh, but it wasn't a joke. If you want to raise free testosterone, you give testosterone. There's no harm in raising those testosterone levels, right. as, you've, as you've already stated. Right. But that is a foreign topic to them. Once they give testosterone based on the package inserts or whatever, they're not going to raise it anymore. It is what it is, even if they're still symptomatic. Man. And these are the guys that are supposedly on the cutting edge of the ship. It's not that way. I was. That's why I was so disappointed. Yeah. No, I understand. I could have been more disappointed. What? Uh, let's address the H and H situation. Did what did they say about that? Oh well. Uh, now let's well, let's talk about what what we're talking about here. All right. Okay. So people Can know. I tell you why everybody thinks it's dangerous. Can yeah. I what is it tell first? You, I mean, it's a. It would take me a few minutes, but I want everybody that comes out of your podcast to know really the truth we've already discussed where prostate cancer lies came from now let's talk about the secondary erythrocytosis that testosterone causes now look the most common side effect of testosterone therapy you know and the one that causes the most concern for the patient and the family doctor is a secondary erythrocytosis which is an increase in red blood cells all right in the cell count right it's often described as the patient their physician you see it all the time i have thick blood Right. And I need to go donate blood because I'm going to have a heart attack, stroke, or blood clot if I don't. Well, right. where does that thought process come from with the family doctor? Well, when a family physician sees an increase in red blood cells along with hemoglobin and hematocrit, it's really frequently misinterpreted as the patient having polycythemia vera, which is a myeloproliferative neoplasm of the bone marrow. It's a bone right. marrow cancer. Right. Now, thrombosis or blood clots are a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in this disorder. All right now, let, let me let me stop you real quick. I want to define our mm-hmm. terms here. Okay. Uh, hematocrit is total blood solids. The percentage the of percentage of blood the blood fraction that is, that is solid, cells, right. or that right. is red blood cells. Correct. Which is it? This percentage of the blood that's red blood cells. That is red blood cells, mm-hmm. and hemoglobin is the amount the, of that that iron bearing protein. In the the red blood cells that transports oxygen. Is red blood cell count related to hematocrit? What is is the difference between the two? It it is. I mean, the more red blood cells, the higher your hematocrit. Simple as that. So the count is per unit of volume. Yeah. And the the crit is uh, 
the percent, percentage of the whole of the total blood volume. That's blood right, volume. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Of the right. whole blood volume. That's right. Okay. That's right. Got it. Okay. So look, polycythemia vera is what is known as a primary erythrocytosis. Testosterone causes a secondary erythrocytosis. And let's talk about this. In a primary erythrocytosis, there is unregulated proliferation of hematopoietic stem cells, which leads to an overproduction of red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And all now, all of the components of the... Vera, there's not only a, quali- a quantitative change in the number of circulating blood cells, but there's a qualitative change that leads to the expression of a pro-coagulant characteristics, meaning that this increase in cells, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets are prone to want to clot, okay? They, uh, in addition, there are abnormalities involving the vascular endothelial cells that become pro-coagulant in response to an inflammatory stimuli. In other words, these abnormalities result in a hypercoagulable state leading to an increase in arterial and venous thrombosis. Okay, so the the reason for that is, as I understand it, is because in polycythemia, you get also an increase in platelet count. You do. Does does testosterone supplementation increase platelet count? No, testosterone supplementation does not increase platelet count. That's an extremely important distinction. Right, so the part of the recommended treatment for polycythemia vera is blood donation to reduce the risk of thrombosis. But let me make this statement. The risk of elevated hematocrit seen in patients with polycythemia vera cannot be extrapolated to hemoglobin, I mean, hematocrit elevation seen during testosterone therapy. It's not they are the, not same, the same and should not be treated the same. Okay. Now, is an elevated H and H in a, pre, a, a person receiving testosterone replacement therapy ever a problem? Uh, well, let me let me go through that, and I will, I'll tell you what the data shows, just like we did with prostate cancer. Okay. I'm going to tell you where these where these recommendations come from. Okay, I mean, we just heard where the recommendations come from not getting testosterone because it's going to cause prostate cancer. Right. It was based on one man in 1941. Yeah. All right. So look, the secondary erythrocytosis from testosterone therapy is an increase in red blood cells only. Com- you know, compared to polycythemia vera, where red blood blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets increase, okay? But there is an increase in hemoglobin and hematocrit. A secondary erythrocytosis also occurs in other conditions like smoking, obstructive sleep apnea, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and living at high altitude, okay? Now, now, we know that primary erythrocytosis is well established as a risk factor for clotting, but a secondary erythrocytosis has never been shown to cause an increase in thromboembolic events in any randomized controlled trial or prospective study to date. And that has been studied. It has been. Okay, so most guidelines recommend following hematocrit after initiating testosterone therapy. And if the hematocrit gets above 54%, clinicians should either adjust the dosage, stop the therapy, order a phlebotomy, or recommend a combination of these. Now listen, these recommendations are based on assumptions, and the cutoff of 54% was arbitrarily chosen and not based on any studies showing harm when this value is exceeded with testosterone therapy. The upper limit of normal for hematocrit in most laboratory reference ranges for healthy males is 54%, which is where this value is likely to rise. Right. So they just, Think about in it. In other words, they are referring back to the reference range when they say Correct. 54%. 
Good point. This is a normal range for men without a secondary erythrocytosis right. and not for men on testosterone or living right. at high altitude. Look, Got it. there's 80 million people that live at uh, an elevation higher than 2,500 meters, and they also get a secondary erythrocytosis. Men in parts of Bolivia have a normal range of hematocrit from 45 to 61 percent. Now, these have, men have a lot of increased risk. I have a, a place in... Uh, I have a place in Colorado at 9,300 feet. And back two or three years ago when I was spending a lot more time up there, I had my hematocrit showed up at 57% one time. But I, okay. but I was up there for months at a time, you know. And But you're okay. So yeah. once again, the normal range is not for men that live at altitude, high altitude, right. or have a secondary erythrocytosis. So I did ask this question of the top year off there at this meeting. I made this observation, just like we made with prostate cancer and testosterone not causing an epidemic. Okay, so one can't ignore the observation that literally tens of thousands of men presently use and abuse testosterone in this country and have done so for decades. We know that. A large percentage of these men are not under the supervision of a physician and aren't even getting labs, yet we haven't seen an epidemic of heart attacks, strokes, or blood clots. I asked Dr. Morgan Tyler and well, others not, that exact not question, until recently. and they said, <laughs> and, I, "And they said, I don't think that it does." Their exact response is, "I don't think that it does cause harm." Right. They said, "I can't ignore that observation. I don't think right. that it does cause harm." Right. But, but here's the real problem. It, you'll see. Okay, so let's say that people say, "Well, I know I don't have polycythemia there because it's still dangerous because my hematocrit's high." Why do they say that? The other concern with increasing hematocrit is that it will increase viscosity and decrease blood flow, right. resulting in thrombotic events. Now, look, in experimental studies, using rigid glass viscometers or comb plate viscometers, there's a logarithmic increase in viscosity with increasing hematocrit. We know all that. Okay, but it's inappropriate to correlate these laboratory in vitro viscosity readings to what occurs to flowing blood through tiny but distensible vessels. Okay? Because in other words, clotting is a measures, because yeah, clotting is a platelet effect. It is. Not but look, but they, an erythrocyte but effect. Well they're well, here's what they're concerned about. They're not concerned about platelets anymore. They're concerned about thin blood, increasing viscosity, because as you increase viscosity, there's a slowing of blood flow. Okay, so you're not gonna get enough blood flow. It's gonna clog up the, the vessels, but that doesn't occur. Let me tell you why. Okay, you know, you, you just, you know, it's, it's just inappropriate to correlate these viscosity readings to what happens in the blood vessels. I mean, in other words, viscometer measures in these experiments don't translate to human blood vessels. And here is why. The flow through these narrow blood vessels is rapid. There's a high shear rate, which in a non-Newtonian fluid like blood causes a marked decrease in viscosity. Second, blood flow into these narrow channels is axial. Okay, there's a central core of packed red blood cells riding around, the, around those packed red cells, blood cells. They're sliding past a peripheral layer of low viscosity plasma. So think about it. You've got this plasma on the outside and these right. packed red blood cells on the inside. So it, they're just going, going through, through the middle of the lumen of the, of the vessel. Right. So a secondary with a secondary erythrocytosis, there's also an increase in blood volume. It doesn't it doesn't happen in a normal volemic state. So there's an increase in blood volume, which enlarges the vascular bed, decreases peripheral vascular resistance, and increases cardiac output. Therefore, you know we have a secondary erythrocytosis like you got a 57 optimal oxygen transport transport with increased uh, blood volume occurs at a higher hematocrit value than with a normal blood volume. 
So that was your body's natural response. You actually right. come back to, down to the sea level. I'm in an oxygen endurance. transport stress, and yep. my response to that was the increase in metacrit, which seems a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And that's not dangerous, but people also ignore the multiple beneficial effects. They all focus on hematocrit. And I've just explained why, you know, it's not a normal range for men on testosterone or that live at altitude. But look, testosterone increases nitric oxide. It's a vasodilator. It improves erythrocyte membrane lipid composition and fluidity. It increases red blood cell deformability. I mean, it does so many things that have a positive effect on Mm -hmm. vascular reactivity. And for all those guys that think they got to donate all the time, look, that's going to give them a false sense of security to begin with. There was a study done over a two-year period of time where they looked at men that were on testosterone therapy, and at least 25% of men that came in for a blood donation had a hematocrit above 54%. When they came back for repeat donations, 4% of them had a persistent elevation above 54%. So essentially, repeat donations were insufficient to maintain a hematocrit level. No, I found that to be the case. And uh, back when I was paying attention to this, I found that to be the case. I'd yep. go in to donate at 57%. Six weeks later, I'm 53. Right. You know, it just, and I, you know, it's just, uh, it's Look, such I a. I always tell my patients, you can donate if you want. It's just, you don't have to. There's a right. difference. Okay. It's never been right. shown to cause harm. Think about it. Testosterone therapy was first used clinically in 1937, and it's been used in thousands of randomized control trials. It's been abused as well. There's not a single randomized control trial to date that shows an increase of major adverse cardiac events with testosterone right. therapy. You hear that it's dangerous. It's just never shown to happen. Right. Now, it's it's also important to understand that a lack, and it just as a general observation, a lack of evidence for a thing, evidence for a thing, does not mean that the thing's not there. It could be that, I mean, you just have to admit that this is true. I think, you know, if you're not collecting evidence in this direction, there's not going to be any evidence in that direction. Now, it could be because there is no evidence, or it could be because nobody asked the right questions. But if this has been looked at, uh, and here, see, here's a perfectly good good place to, to, to draw an interesting parallel. We have seen a lot of clotting pathologies over the past year and a half with the introduction of these interesting treatments that everybody for COVID that everybody wants to call a vaccine. We've seen lots and lots and lots of those. We've got anecdotal reports and the, the, the shit is piling up that this thing causes clotting problems, but we're not supposed to take testosterone. Right. Well, Look, I, you know, so we've been taking testosterone Once again, you're dealing with a pharmaceutical time. company. You're dealing yeah. with the pharmaceutical company sure. and the government. I mean, that's just what it is. There's yeah. no other explanation. Yeah, right. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, is there such a thing as too much testosterone? And how would well, we know? That, that's, that's interesting in that, you know, you see that question asked a lot, but we really need to think about how testosterone works. Okay. So when you take or make testosterone, it really travels down three pathways, okay? It has a direct effect on muscle tissue. Look, that's why bodybuilders want their levels in the tens of thousands, for instance. Dallas Carver, I think, had a level of 55,000. So look, there's a dose response. Yeah, his his, uh, his, uh, autopsy report was 55,000. So look, there is a dose response relationship. The higher the testosterone, the more increase in lean muscle mass. We all know that. That's why they do it. But look, most all of the other beneficial effects from testosterone come from its conversion into DHT and estradiol at the tissue level. 
Now, men think that if I keep increasing my testosterone levels, my DHT and estradiol are just going to go to the moon, sky high. That doesn't happen. It can't happen because of what we call Michaelis-Menten kinetics. We only have so many enzymes. We only have so many 5-alpha reductase enzymes, so many aromatase enzymes. Right. Once those enzymes are fully saturated with substrate, substrate testosterone, they can't produce anymore. Right. So testosterone and, will rise and like this. 5-alpha reductase will not increase above a baseline? Is that, is that correct? No, what I'm going to say is that we only have so much of it, and right. that once it's fully saturated with testosterone, well, no, what it I'm, can't produce what, anymore. But what I'm asking is, 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 does the level of 5-alpha reductase not respond to increased levels of testosterone? No, not that I'm, I mean, the, 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 testosterone will increase androgen receptors, as, as will DHT, but I don't think that it increase. look, it doesn't increase the amount of 5-alpha reductase enzyme. Okay. So what you're producing as much of that as you can, and and that's not essentially trainable. Well, in the once sense again, that, you you have a certain amount, and once your testosterone fully saturates the five alpha reductase enzyme, you can't produce any more DHT. And in fact, DHT is a paracrine hormone, meaning that it's really converted to the tissue level, you know, at like the prostate, at the skin, the hair. Look, once it's fully saturated, the DHT circulating in your blood has no effect at the tissue level anymore so you can raise dht sky high literally take a dht mm -hmm. cream and it won't have any effect on the target tissues anymore because they have a you know regulatory system they have a local homeostatic you know mechanism that it doesn't raise right. inside like the prostate for instance you can raise dht to the moon the intraprostatic dht levels will not rise right so people once again block estradiol they block dht and look the estradiol blockage came from bodybuilders it was a good idea for them to, hey, if I block testosterone's conversion into estradiol, I'll increase free testosterone. That's right. It, it works. This is exactly what it does. So if you take, uh, you know, if you take finasteride, you're going to block DHT. It also raises free testosterone. So anytime you take one of those blockers, you're going to increase free testosterone. Because once again, testosterone goes down the direct pathway and stimulates right. muscle tissue. It then travels down the diversification pathway, which is converted into estradiol. And that's where it provides you with all those wonderful benefits on your brain, your bones, your blood vessels, your heart, your sexual right. function. In it other also words, is converted I don't to want to block conversion to estradiol. You do not. And once again, I've explained that it does not rise to the moon. It plateaus. Why it plateaus. do bodybuilders think that they want their free testosterone to continue to increase at the expense of an elevated estradiol? It, it will not increase past a certain point. Oh, you mean, are you asking why they take a Roman taste? Yes, why would they take an AI to to, well, to for, keep estradiol aromatization down? For two reasons. They think that it's going to go up indefinitely, and infinitely, that is, and it doesn't. It plateaus. So does DHT. That's what it does. It goes up. It follows testosterone for a while. Testosterone keeps going up. It plateaus. You can't produce anymore, no matter how much testosterone you take. No matter. So, they think it's going to go up, which is a misconception. That's not how physiology works. But they also know that if they block it, it will increase free testosterone. The more free testosterone, the more increase in lean muscle mass. Of course, right. that's kind more of how that works. More anabolic effect they get. Yeah. So, um, but that's not why we're taking it. No. That's no. not why we're taking it. We're, we're taking it for the general. I'm 66. Right. You know, I, I need the testosterone. I don't need anything for my next physique show. Well, what guys need to understand is when you block estradiol, you're blocking the beneficial effects of testosterone at the tissue level. 
I, why would you want to do that? I mean, yeah. I don't have anybody with estrogen symptoms, and I my guys look great, okay? But I don't have these so-called estrogen, so-called symptoms, okay? You know, let me put it this way to you. So I was there at this conference. They're still presenting all these studies where testosterone reverses type 2 diabetes, reduces insulin resistance, all these wonderful things that testosterone actually does. In none of those studies, not a single one, did they use an aromatase inhibitor? Not one. Right. I, I don't know how those got so damn popular because it's just one. It, it's one more example of what I was talking about earlier. You're perturbing a variable and you don't know what the hell it's going to do because it's a very, very complicated system. You, If I increase my testosterone levels, it would be normal for a certain percentage of that testosterone to aromatize to estradiol. Mm-hmm. That's part of the deal. That's, that's part of the deal. The it's supposed to happen. It's right. supposed to happen. It happens in a 28-year-old that has plenty of testosterone and who will also aromatize some of that to estradiol. Estrogen. Let's talk about that. That's a great point. So... You know, let's think about it. If we do 18-year-old, perfect physical condition, we raise the, I mean, their testosterone levels naturally high. That's awesome. He will have an estradiol level to reflect that level of testosterone. Mm-hmm. When at 18 years old, producing natural testosterone, if you had a high level, would you ever consider taking an aromatase inhibitor? Never. Right. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't block it because you're doing great with your, but the reason you're doing great is because the high testosterone creates Estradiol, testosterone is a pro-hormone. I'm going to say it over and over again. It's a pro-hormone. It, it exerts its beneficial effects by being converted into DHC and estradiol. Also, the normal estradiol range. Here we go with normal ranges again. I think it's 835, like a lab core. That is not the normal range for men with good testosterone levels or men on testosterone. If we took just the men that had a level of 1,000 testosterone naturally and just measured their estradiol, we would have a much higher Right. Normal range for estradiol. Right. And men wouldn't be freaking out about it. So men, think about how silly this really gets. I want to raise my testosterone and get all the benefits. I want to get it out of the normal sick range. I want it to be 1,500. But I want to keep my estradiol in the normal range for men with low testosterone. It won't stay it there. No it makes well, no sense. Makes no sense. And you don't want it to stay there. No. Because you, you don't understand that the estrogen is a beneficial component of the hormone profile. Absolutely. You, you, you have to under this. All of this shit is extremely complicated, and it's all interrelated. It is. And as far as I'm concerned, the less perturbation that you can obtain with a therapeutic application of as of the thing that needs to be elevated, the better. Right. Right. Like I'm not. I wouldn't be interested in taking any DHEA. I'm not gonna. I wouldn't be interested in taking HCG because I don't see the benefit to doing that if I'm taking testosterone in sufficient amounts. Now, Keith may argue with that, but uh, well, of course I will because um, you know you're thinking about testosterone therapy and I'm thinking about hormone optimization. And once right. again, all your levels decline. So let's think about this. Let me tell you just a few things that DHEA may do. It may stimulate your immune system, improve memory, increase energy, 
have anti-cancer properties, improve mood, help with depression, reduce your cardiovascular risk by decreasing visceral body fat. It can improve hypertension and cholesterol, reduces insulin requirements, protects against osteoporosis, improves erectile dysfunction, protects against muscle atrophy, and it protects against inflammation. So you have to ask yourself, where do I want my levels to be? Right. If I have a low level of DHEA, I have a little bit of those effects. If I have an optimal level of DHEA, I'm maximizing the effects I just listed. I remember when we could buy that at GNC. You still can. Yeah, sure. It's oh, can you really? Is it over-the-counter, DHEA yeah. is? I thought yeah. they'd yeah. taken that off. It's a off. supplement. Yeah. Yeah. Really? But, you know, supplements, remember, are food-grade. Uh, there's no guarantee right. of purity or potency. They're not regulated by the you know FDA, so right. kind of buyer beware. Is there any reason to test for estrogen? Do you ever measure estrogen, estradiol? I don't measure estradiol because I'm not going to do anything with it, number one. But number two, when you measure estradiol, you're simply getting a reading of what is converted peripherally, okay? It's not what's going on at the tissue level, okay? You know, estradiol is not an endocrine hormone. It's a paracrine hormone. So you're just merely measuring what's in the blood that has no effect on your body, okay? What testosterone goes to the tissue enters the cell and it's converted to estradiol to exert its effects. What's going around in the blood that's being uh, produced peripherally by the, by the adipocytes, for instance, doesn't have any effect. Now, the reason that people think that it does is because baseline observations of men with high estradiol die of heart attacks, strokes. They have cardiac events at baseline that are not on testosterone. Well, why is that? Is it the estradiol? Well, what causes the high estradiol? The visceral body fat, the obesity. Yes, all so those hormones they're are produced. Estradiol, they're not just, just produced in ovaries and testicles. It's just they're blaming estradiol when it's actually the visceral body fat, the insulin resistance, the obesity that killed them, not estradiol. Right. Estradiol elevation is just a just a interesting. DHT and estradiol are what we call paracrine hormones, meaning that they enter the cell. They do their job, and you can increase levels in the blood, and it will have no further effect. Okay, that's not how it works. Testosterone goes into the cells as testosterone, and it's converted to DHT or estradiol. What's circulating around in the blood has no effect on the tissue levels of DHT or estradiol. Right. That's a hard concept to understand, but that's kind of how it, how it works. So, so I get the impression that the older the patient is, now you tell me if this is the correct impression. The older the patient is, the the more factors that go into what you consider to be necessary for hormone optimization. Is that a fair statement? I treat them uh, all the all the same. I really do. I'm going to optimize levels to symptomatic improvement. Whether I have 95 year old patients, 95 or, or 30, we're going to optimize those hormones based on your symptoms and. Make those levels as good as I can make them to make you as healthy as I can. Okay. But older men do become insulin resistant as we age. That's what happens. We decrease lean muscle mass and we increase fat, visceral and subcutaneous. That's what happens as we age. And now you've hit the nail on the head. The whole goal of hormone optimization, starting at 40 or so, is to prevent them from losing lean muscle mass, becoming insulin resistant, increasing visceral body fat, because all of these hormones together work to prevent insulin resistance. That's the end game, is we want to eliminate, uh, end up, and that brings to, to a good point. Do you know what is the only drug 
today that's been proven to reverse type 2 diabetes and prevent men with prediabetes from getting diabetes. It's an 11-year study, so it wasn't a little study, but it reversed type 2 diabetes, completely reversed it. You know what it was? Probably testosterone. It's exactly what's testosterone. Why isn't it used by everybody in their practice to help these people that have diabetes, type 2 diabetes? That's such a good question. Uh, Here's another question. Why does... Why do orthopedic surgeons not send every patient home with an Anivar prescription? I don't know. You're trying to heal up the damaged tissue from the surgery. That's what oxandrolone does. Right. Why would you not send a guy home with six weeks of oxandrolone? Right. The hell is wrong with that? Well, well, what's happening with that is the the stigma that comes along the with it. The DEA is what's happening. You know, with. the stigma of guys abusing it, and right. you know, so it affects how doctors treat. It, it really does. But yeah, that'd be great yeah. if they if they did that to improve healing. Right. Well, uh, Keith, I appreciate your being with us today. Anything appreciate else we anything we leave out? You think? I don't think we did. The main thing was to cover the kind of the three big myths of testosterone therapy, prostate cancer, hemoglobin risk, and, you know, estradiol management. Right. So I, I call think it the three big myths. You know, if you uh, we'll talk again in the future as well. And, uh, you know, there'll be questions that come up in response to our conversation today. And there'll be uh, other things that you think of and other things I think of we want to discuss because it's good to have a, a knowledgeable source here on this. And, well, let me uh, uh, make one last point because on your forum, you have a great forum. There's a lot of intellectual. I mean, you guys, that's what a smart group of individuals. I'm going to tell you. Now, I treat a right. lot of starting strength individuals. They are an excellent group of patients. They are just the best. But I'm going to tell you, on that forum, one of your guys asked, well, What's wrong with taking 500 milligrams of testosterone? Is is there too much that you can take? Well, look, here's how it works. It's okay to do that. Okay, but here's how testosterone works. When you get back to the pro-hormone effect, in order to how you feel, it gets converted into DHT and estradiol. Once those are fully saturated, you can't produce anymore. So any increase in testosterone over that saturation point is not going to make you feel any different. So in other words, you could take one gram of testosterone or three grams of testosterone. You're not going to feel any different, but it is going to directly stimulate the muscle tissue. So you're going to get increasingly muscle mass. So it becomes about performance enhancement after a certain point. Right, which is not the same thing as, as, as hormone optimization. Right. 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 No, right. that's, 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 that's a fair point. And, uh, uh, we're at two different endpoints uh, that we're we're trying to obtain here. You know, I know guys that, you know, gram a test a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. A gram of testosterone a week. Yep. <laughs> it's a baseline. You know. <laughs> you, yep. You They're out there. Be around yep. in this lifting community for for long enough, you run into these lunatics. I, I guess they just have unlimited money too. Is <laughs> Because yeah. I mean, there gets to be a point where it's just you're just throwing dollars into the fire. So, right, it's just it's just not beneficial to you. But uh, anyway, well, I really appreciate you having me. Well, on I so appreciate we can you being these topics on. that are very important. Yeah, because I do treat men with prostate cancer. I had one, to, you know, today and yesterday. So it's just great to, that these men know that it's you know can actually do it, and they're not going to be right. deprived. Absolutely. And uh, I really appreciate you hooking me up with Joe Bush. Oh, yeah. What a great, great guy. guy he is. 
you know, he, he was so good on that show, and I just it was it was a that was a fabulous he is fabulous and the funniest guy, nicest. Oh God guy. Almighty, I mean, he's funnier than hell, isn't he? I just mm-hmm. enjoyed. I recommend that anybody <laughs> that has an elevated PSA before you go get a biopsy, you travel down to Atlanta, Georgia, and you see Doctor Joe Bush and get that MRI of your prostate. Right. Don't let them chop you open do not because do you that. have an elevated PSA. Correct. And I think we made that. that point, but let's make it again. An elevated yep. PSA can be the result of lots and lots of things that are not prostate cancer. Do not let them intervene and poke a bunch of holes in your prostate because you have an elevated PSA. Don't do it. As he said, 80% of those men don't have prostate cancer. No, they don't have prostate cancer. It's just... Yep. Oh, God. Well, you know, that frustrates me also. Well, uh, Keith, I sure do appreciate you being with us today. Keith Nichols from Tier 1 Health and Wellness in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he's been our guest today on Starting Strength Radio. And we appreciate appreciate his time. We Thank you for watching this, and we'll see you next time on Starting Strength Radio.